0: We got one goal, the win. If you're part of the solution, I'm down with you. If you're not part of the solution, I I don't need you around me. I know I'm going to do my job. It's just the fact that you better know you better do your damn job or there's going to be some repercussions. And uh, that's what people don't like. People don't like to be held accountable. We all got to be accountable to somebody. And if we can't be accountable to each other, if one person on a team destroyed a dream, And he needs to be punished.
1: Hey, sports lovers, get ready for a deep dive into the legendary careers and lives of sports' biggest stars with Hall of Famers, the podcast. Hosted by the pros who have guided and documented the amazing careers of these iconic athletes. More than just another interview, this is your all-access, all-season pass into what made these Hall of Fame legends great. From their humble beginnings and career highs to the breathtaking pressures they've faced, we're taking you from obscurity to the world stage of immortality. And the excitement doesn't stop there. Hall of Famers fuels the burning debate of true greatness. Who's the real GOAT? LeBron or MJ? Jim Brown or Barry Sanders? Barry Bonds or Aaron Judge? wonder what these legends are up to now stick around our commentary explores all this and more with the most entertaining twists and turns you can't get anywhere else this is your worldwide sports adventure hall of famers is like no other podcast because it covers the all-time grades from all the major team sports no matter what your favorite sport is hall of famers has a story that will inspire you brace yourself for an unforgettable journey Get ready for Hall of Famers, the podcast, where legends never retire.
2: Greetings and welcome to another exhilarating episode of HOF's Hall of Famers, the podcast. I'm C. Lamont Smith, your host. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Jared Bell of USA Today. Jared is also a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. Our guest today is the first player to win five Super Bowl championships. He was selected All-Pro twice and earned Pro Bowl nods five times in his illustrious career. He is a two-time Defensive Player of the Year and a member of the College Football and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We would like to welcome Mr. Charles Haley to HOFs. Charles, how you doing, man?
0: Hey, Lamar. Hey, Jared. How y'all doing?
2: We're good. We're good. So you're in Dallas now, right? Is is that home for you these days? These days, yes. Okay. What what made you decide to make Dallas home?
0: Four kids and three grandkids. <laughs> we had young kids when we were playing, and they had to go through high school. So I'm still here, but my, my goal is to go home in a couple of years to Virginia.
2: Okay. Okay. Good deal. Yeah, I know Jared has got a few questions about growing up in Virginia and I want to jump into uh, James Madison, but let's talk about Virginia a little bit. Jared, you want to jump in there?
3: Yeah, yeah. Charles is from a place called Gladys, Virginia. I'd never heard of Gladys, Virginia until I heard of Charles Haley and I had to go to the map and look it up. But Charles, in your words, what is Gladys like and what was it like for you growing up in central Virginia?
0: two of them families, most are, um factory workers or you worked on the farm. there. town segregated. It's still segregated. But, you know, it was just, you know, but everybody was poor. So it, it, it was a bunch of poor people that were segregated, you know. That's probably pretty much it.
3: And you did a lot of different jobs. I mean, your mom and your dad both worked and raised five boys, the Haley boys, as they were known. What was your upbringing like in terms of like you said, being poor and not knowing what you didn't have until much later.
0: I, I think I'm a little bit different than my brothers. I think they were conformist. They was okay with the status quo. They were okay going, going with whatever the standard was. And I was more emotional. I was more, I wouldn't say driven, but I was more wanting to be able to please my mom. She was my best friend. And you know, my dad worked all the time, so we get to see him on, on Saturdays, and then, you know, he worked um, Sunday nights. so that was a hard part of it. But you know what? We didn't miss it. My mom was man and woman. She didn't pay. Hey,
3: one more thing to ask you about that, that period of your life. Is it true that when you were growing up, you wanted to, to be a preacher one day, a Southern Baptist preacher?
0: I did, because I just... I like orators. I like oh, people I that's, that can roll the room with words. It always amazed me. So so
2: keeping with your time in Gladys, you were not heavily recruited out of high school, and you ended up going to James Madison. How did that motivate you when you ultimately got to James Madison? And why do you think you were not heavily recruited?
0: This football stuff. I had that shit down. You know, I didn't need to be pushed. I, was, You know, I, when I got to Madison, I went down to D Hall. I didn't realize that rookie's supposed to be in the back and, and up front. I wouldn't move. They start talking to me out my name, and they didn't realize the dog that was in front of them. And I was knocking them fools out every day. Every day for, you know, and the coach ran me. He would hey. He would make me run, and I would, I would go to myself, oh, my God, he wants me to get endurance run the track so fast that I'll pass out. So then he would try to, you know, he tried, you know, making me crap the field. And I'm going like, oh, he wants me to get low. So it didn't matter what the coach did to try to punish me for my behavior. I turned the negative into a positive. And then, you know what, I took it even further. I went at it 110%, no matter what that punishment is. I tried to, I tried to run through the fire. I tried to run through it, and then at the end, he got me. He said, "You know what?" He, he said, "Charles, what am I gonna do with you?" And I said, "Coach." I said, "Hey," I said, "You can break these bones, scar these hands, but you won't break my damn spirit." The next time I did something, he said, "I'm gonna call your mama." Hey, I was under control after that.
3: Scared straight.
0: My mom ain't no joke, bruh. <laughs>
3: That's hard to believe you under control. You said it. I didn't say it, but it is also illustrative of the work ethic that you had and the, you know, just the whole passion that you played with in the NFL. I mean, is that kind of how it all started? Because you were so relentless as a player on the field, but you were also so dedicated and committed off the field in terms of studying and, watching film and doing all the things that, you know.
0: Well, the big biggest key for me is, is that I have four brothers and they could wake up every morning being great. I had to really work at it. And so that's where the drive came for me because I wanted to be better than them. I wanted my mom to say I'm the best. And even to this day, she tells me my brothers are better than me in football. And, you know, I don't want five Super Bowls, you know what? Right.
2: Five Super Bowls, Pro it, Football Hall of Fame, College Football Hall of Fame, and they still better.
0: Oh, no, nah, she ain't going to tell her nothing. <laughs> but, you know, like anything else, I, that I never thought about going to the NFL until the NFL knocked on my door. But once I got there, I balled these fists up. I stood in the middle of the locker room, and I balled my fists up, and I made a commitment to myself that, hey, I ain't going nowhere. And I turned around in 180. I did a 180. Turned all the way around. I wanted everybody to see me. I ain't going nowhere. Yeah.
3: Charles, is it true that the only NFL player that you knew when you came into the league was Mean Joe Green? And why was that?
0: You are 100% correct. We were Southern Baptists, and we were in church and in church, and then one Sunday for Super Bowl pittsburgh were playing and that commercial where me and joe green threw that kid his jersey and the kid gave him a coke man that that was so symbolic of what i want to be like when i grow up i wanted somebody to, to be inspired just like i was as a kid when uh me and joe green gave that kid that jersey so i go all the time and i hug his neck and i tell him how much i love I talk to his kids. Whatever he wants, man, if if it's in my power to do, I'll do it because um, he inspired me.
3: He's a true treasure. So you, you get to San Francisco, and I know from being out there and covering the team that you and Ronnie Lott had a special, special relationship. How did that evolve? Why did you and Lott connect, and what was the genesis of that?
0: Well, probably because Ronnie was probably the only one that could control me. And Ronnie was an excellent teacher. I wanted to be like him. I couldn't figure out how he could turn that switch on and off. I could not understand that. And then one day we went to a a barbershop to give out shoes to kids. And this 13 year old kid walked up to Ronnie and said, Mr. Lott, what makes you great? And he said, I play without fear. That was the last day I was under Ronnie's wings. Hey, I grew my own wings after that. And I started from that point on trying to be the leader that he was.
2: And and following up on that, what was it like practicing against Joe Montana and playing with Joe Montana?
0: Well, I called Joe Pinocchio because I, he had a big nose. So, you know, we had, hey, man, Joe was the greatest friend anybody could have, greatest teammate, man. i Hey, i played this game, been around so many people, man. There is none. Hands down. None. I mean, genuine. Genuine as shit. I, I love him, man. You know, he's been my friend from day one, and he hasn't changed. You know, he called the phrase bullet head. He just called me bullet head. But, you know, I could have told him that. That was no secret because my hair shaped like a bullet because I'm a big shot. But, he you know. It just went over that nose. It went over that nose, you know, but he is incredible. I was kind of scared to practice against him because I only knew one speed. That's full speed. And sometimes when I turn the corner too fast, Joe is right there. And, you know, it scares me a lot because, you know, I think I ran into him maybe once or twice.
2: I was going to ask you that. Yeah.
0: I got reprimanded. That means go take your ass in the locker room. <laughs> right,
2: <laughs> right. You do not do
0: that. <laughs> Hey, you do not do it. Hey, hey. right. No doubt. But the the greatest thing that really, having a head coach like Bill Walsh, mm-hmm. probably one of the other greatest things I ever had because, you know, even he didn't go up there and do word magic with me. He would call me in and say, Charles, A, B, and C, and get out. And, you know, it wasn't on set there for an hour, get a lecture, and then walk out. What the hell? What war were we talking about? So he knew how to communicate with me the best of any coach that i played with because he was very direct and open, and that, that meant a lot to me.
2: If my timeline is correct, did you come in the same year that Rice came in or were you before or after him?
0: Jerry came in a year before. me. Okay,
2: okay. So right. you weren't going through any rookie hazing with well, him? Did you get haze? Oh, no.
0: Oh, hell yeah, I got haze. What are you talking about. Are you crazy? They took me outside and after practice, and they took tape, taped my head around, taped my hand to the goalpost, and put a jock in my mouth. I'm still trying to figure out whether it was dirty or not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, they left me out there. And then, I guess, 30, 40 minutes, Bill Walsh looked out there, and he saw me, sent somebody out there to cut me down. They put me in like a, you know, you call it a little pad room mm-hmm. because I think Coach knew I was going to retaliate to those people that put their hands on me. So I couldn't practice for a while. I had to stay in this room doing practice and things because he thought I was going to retaliate. Putting a jock in my mouth might require
2: retaliation
0: in that situation. Yeah, but but long as long they never told me it was dirty, dog. Right. No, I I feel feel you. Me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you
3: were quite a price to in your own right, you know, after that rookie initiation and you had a lot of different, you know, relationships with teammates, you know, some much closer, some not closer. How did you come to grips with how you related to your teammates? You talked about Joe in glowing terms and Ronnie, obviously, but not everybody was a Charles Haley fan in your locker room. How did you deal with that?
0: Oh, I don't give a shit. Hey, we got one goal. The win, okay? If you're part of the solution, I'm down with you. If you're not part of the solution, I I don't need you around me. I know I'm going to do my job. It's just the fact that you better know you better do your damn job or there's going to be some repercussions. And uh, that's what people don't like. People don't like to be held accountable. We all got to be accountable to somebody. And if we can't be accountable to each other, because they always lied and told me, team make the dream work, right? Uh-huh. So if, if one person on a team destroyed a dream, then he needs to be punished.
3: When I first went to cover the 49ers, it was 1990. You guys, Charles, were going for the three P and your reputation with the media was awful. You know, the reporters didn't want to talk to you. You didn't want to talk to them, so on and so forth. But Ronnie Locke pulled me to the corner And he said, and I'm a new reporter on the beat, and he's like, you need to get to know Charles Haley. You need to interview Charles Haley." I said, Charles didn't want, no, you need to do that. And I don't know if you remember Charles, but I would come to you every like Thursday and try to get you to talk about the team that you guys are playing. And it was like some of the best interview material that I had on a regular basis because you would break down these other teams like you know, like a coach, like a veteran player. And it really, and Ronnie told me that that was what was going to happen. He's like, this guy is like the smartest football player that we have in this locker room or as smart as anybody. Where did that come from? Why, why were you able to break down the game, the opponents to really just have that mental edge that a lot of people didn't give you credit for?
0: Well, you know what? The other great thing that I had, George Secret is a micromanager. So he would get up and go over every defense by every player. So I learned to be very detailed just because of him. But I steal a little things from every coach, every player that I love. I steal a little bit of them and put it inside of me to help me grow as a man. But the media far was, is, you know, I went to James Madison. We didn't have media. And then when I get to the NFL, people just writing stuff about me. You know, they ask me a question, I say yes or no, and nothing else. And then I wake up the next day, they don't wrote this shit story about me, and and then want to come be my friend. No, that ain't working like that. <laughs> and,
3: yeah, yeah, that's definitely a, a a crazy dynamic. And and tell us that
2: story about when you came from James Madison and you flew into San Francisco for the first time. Tell us about when you arrived.
0: Oh, my God. Just, you know, hey, first, you know, just getting on the plane, man, and um, the turbulence and stuff, man, and when we landed, and so, you know, I'm already praying to God never get back on one of these things, and I get off the plane, and I didn't know where my luggage was, so I asked this white guy, I said, hey, where's the baggage claim? And he starts speaking another language. I asked the black guy, he starts speaking another language. I thought, oh, shit. So I I I decided to go back to the gate. And then, if it wasn't for John Gruden coming to the gate to get me, bruh, I'd probably be back in Gladys by now. God. You know, hey, let me tell you, hey, that. I was too petrified because I've never been around. Because where I grew up, is black or white. There was no different languages, none of that stuff. So I didn't have no idea what that was like.
3: It's pretty incredible that John Gruden was the one who picked you up when you first arrived to the 49ers, and we know what happened with his career, but at that time, he was just a gopher, low man on the totem pole doing these odd jobs. What was it like to know Gruden back then?
0: Hey, man, I used to talk so much trash to Gruden, man. I call him Piss Boy, everything else, man, because you know what? He did all the little dumb things, man, but I always like to tell him, too, you know, by him picking me up, I elevated him to greatness because he got a chance to breathe some of that air, some of that, air, you know what I'm saying? Hey, and I told him if I'd have put a little sweat on him. He probably would have had a heart attack. <laughs> hey. All
3: right. Yes, indeed. There were some great, great characters with those 49ers and with the Cowboys too, right. when you go oh, there.
2: Man. Right. And, and that's,
3: that's actually where I want to go
2: with this. So the, the two great rivalries of the nineties were, the 49ers, and the Cowboys. There came a time when you were traded to the Cowboys, okay? What was your first thought about that? Having had that been your rival all these years, what went through your mind with that, and how was that when you first made that transition?
0: Well, first of all, the Cowboys were not my rival at then. They were like one until five and ten or something. They became the 49ers and, and uh, became my rival when I went to the 49ers. I, I just, it hurt me so much that they thought that I could be replaced. I was, I could be that easily replaced. You know, although my my action to George Seaford was I would say that he had no, he had nothing else to do but to get rid of me at that point because you know the way that that I felt about him and and the things that I did so i i I could understand it now, but then I just thought that they were trading me because they thought they had Tim Harris or somebody else there that could take my place. Hmm. I was going to prove to them that I'm not that easy to be replaced.
3: Yeah, they bring in Tim Harris, Now, I'm covering the team back then. That was a, it. Had to be insulting, or a situation where they were going to try to pair you guys one on one side, one on the other. But you didn't really have a great relationship with Harris, did you?
0: Oh, I had a great. I still have a great relationship with Tim. We used to go drinking every every day after practice. Really? People always want to say that me and Tim have problems. Tim knew there could only be one, and I was that one, and he was number two. Okay. And we were good with that. You know, like I said, man, I have a strong personality and sometimes unyielding, but we we found a way to work together and be good friends, and we still are. Sure.
3: So you go to Dallas, and one of the the things that the Cowboys wondered about when they made the deal is why would the 49ers trade this guy? I mean, is he that disruptive of a force? What are we getting here? As it turned out, you would like the missing piece that they needed.
0: Well, the Cowboys, hey, they wouldn't have made the trade if they was asking themselves that question. They must have got the answers. You know what? They never asked me. Nobody's ever asked me. Jerry picked me up at the airport, grabbed my luggage bag, dog. Jerry Jones. Jerry
2: Jones picked you up at the airport,
0: and grabbed my damn luggage, dog. I'm going like, who the hell is this guy? And I I looking at these people going like, hey, who is this? He, he is the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. I thought, I thought, okay. And then, you know, we got in the car, Jerry talked about all the things and and how he fought the the Cowboys and everything. He said some magic words. I got your back.
3: Mm. Wow. Mm. That's interesting because the way the story has been told is that Jerry called up Eddie DeBarnolo and said, why are you guys trading this guy, this, you know, dynamic force on your defense? And Eddie explained, okay, we had this issue with the coaches, this issue, this. And, and Jerry pretty much said to Eddie, is that all? <laughs> That's all. We'll take them. And and that was kind of, you know, that answer, like you said. But you got the Dallas man and, you know, like I, I said, said, missing piece to a team that yeah. ends up, you know, going yeah. and winning three Super Bowls.
0: If you, you know, if you be honest, George Seifert wanted me to replace Ronnie and Kena and all those guys and become a leader, and I didn't want to do that. I got traded to the Cowboys, and that's exactly what I ended up being, is a leader and teaching guys how to study the game, how to see the game, and how to play the game.
2: Presently, you enjoy relationships with both franchises, San Francisco 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys. Currently, they are two of the teams contending for the Super Bowl probably this year in the NFC. Talk to me about each of the teams and what you see as strengths and weaknesses in both, and do you give one the edge over the other in terms of contending for the Super Bowl this year?
0: I'm not going to give you the strengths and weaknesses of either team. I'll just tell you this, is that I think that, it's, you know, they're going to play each other in, in two weeks. I think it's going to be a good game. But, you know, it, I'll tell you one thing is is that the head coach for the 49ers, I think he's the best. He's that lightning rod. And you know they got a good defense. The Cowboys got a great defense. You know, Mike, Mike is, you know, this is his first year of trying to get this offense, this new offense going. And so you're going to always run into some issues trying to get guys to line up right, to get the quarterback communication, you know, all these things. It takes more than a year to get that done. They only been been two or three months. So that communication part for the Cowboys is probably going to be one of the things that they going to have to overcome. It's going to hurt them early, but then they should – get better as the season goes
2: you were a pass rusher personified the cowboys have a great pass rusher right now in michael parsons okay do you see any similarities in your and his games or let's go back to the 49ers and nick bosa do you see more similarities between his game and your game tell me about um, those two as
0: pass you know rushers. what they got stats, hey amen. I got my ass kicked every Sunday. I got two or three people hitting me. It, the game has changed, most of the blocks or or the things that they did when I played is the illegal now, so I cannot say or quantify how great a player he is because he didn't play the side. I can say, looking at now this league now is a past happy league and, and you get blocked one on one and and so. It, it's more or less now, it, it's about scheme. It's not about skill, it's about scheme. And if you accidentally have some skill to go with a scheme, you're even a better player.
3: Okay, Emmett Smith holding out. You guys start 0-2. Jerry Jones in the locker room. The story goes that you go to Jerry, you got your helmet, you smash your helmet in the wall, leave a hole. A few days later, Emmett has got a new contract. Is that kind of how that
0: went down? My thing was I was addressing the team and I was pissed off because we had the best offensive line in the business. We got a running back and they sitting there griping about one person. And, you know, so I was pissed off and I got mad and I threw my helmet and shit. I didn't know Jerry was over there, but I guess he was over there. And I guess when the helmet came, he go like, oh, hell, I better get him in here. And uh, hey, but you got to remember, Jerry want to win too. So, you know, he realized, you know, we owe him 2. Yeah. We got to get him in.
3: I mean, that was kind of part of your persona with the passion when it came to winning and losing. And the one game that I remember towards the end of your 49ers career was when you guys lost to the Raiders and Ronnie Locke was a Raider. And, you know, I'm outside waiting with the media to get to the locker room and we're waiting for like 15, 20, 25 minutes. And finally, Ronnie Locke comes from the Raiders locker room dressed in nothing but a towel and yeah. comes yeah. and I had a
0: consoles you I had, or whatever. I had a meltdown. You know, um, I put my hand through the wire glass door thing and I cut my arms all up. So the, the doctors and trainers gap that I had was scared to come over there, help me. Brother bleeding to death. And they, they so they got to go across the room, and get Ronnie. I could be dead by the time Ronnie got back over there. But, you know, Ronnie came over. Hug my neck, calm me down, and then we moved on from there. I, I feel you. I feel you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap
2: for our show today. We want to thank Mr. Charles Haley.
1: That's a wrap for today's Deep Dive into the sports world. Next time, we'll be back with even more stories of triumph, irresistible debates, and, as always, a high-level look into the lives of eternal legends. Give Hall of Famers a like and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Want to keep the convo going? Join in the debates and stay in the know with all things Hall of Famers on social media for exclusive behind-the-scenes content and a chance to link up with fellow sports buffs and our crew. Until next time, keep reaching for the stars.